Welcome to Talks, a bunch of, well, talks with builders that have things to say about DAOs, Web3, their life, and uh, other things. Today, I'm going to be DAO talking with Kevin Nielsen, who's a Danish-Peruvian first-time founder that grew up in Spain, now lives in New York, and created in 2018 what today is Boardroom Labs. We're going to be talking about his journey into DAOs and learning about governance, incentive, transparency, and delegation. We're going to talk about Boardroom Labs more specifically and how it makes it easier for humans to interact with DAOs. And we're going to explore how DAOs might one day substitute companies as we know them. First, however, I have to make, again, a statement requested by our lawyers. Here it comes. The information in this podcast is provided for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only, without any express or implied warranty of any kind, including warranties of accuracy, completeness, or fitness for any particular purpose. It is not intended to be and does not constitute financial advice, investment advice, trading advice, or any other advice. Cool. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast on Spotify or Apple or Google or any other platform, consider heading over to talk.dalhas.com. That is uh, talk.dalhas.com. Um, you're getting the exact same podcast that you listen to now, plus an interactive transcript and uh, links to topics, sites, and people, and more talks, obviously. Let's jump in. Hello, Kevin Nielsen. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for taking the time. I think it says on your LinkedIn, you don't use LinkedIn, but it says a location. I think you are in the US and you're in New York. But I also saw you grew up in Spain and you speak Danish, I think. Where are you coming from? That's right. That's right. I did grow up in Spain. I grew up in Madrid and came over to the U.S. to study undergrad and college in New York. But my father's Danish and my mother's actually Peruvian. So I have an interesting international mix there. They met in Spain and decided to stay there. But luckily, I attended an international school and that exposed me to, you know, the other worlds and I wanted to jump into a new one. So ended up moving over to the U.S. when I was 18 and have been here ever since for the last 10 years. And it's been great. Bounced around New York, California, all over the place. But now, yes, I'm settled in New York. So your mom is good at making Peruvian food? Great Peruvian food. Amazing Peruvian food. Absolutely. <laughs> well, you're definitely <laughs> going to have to invite me over some days. You know, wherever. It's funny, we just did a uh, overland trip through Africa for the last, uh, yeah, six months or so and spent about a year and a half in Africa. My family and I have been living nomadic with the kids for like 10 years now. So the kids were kind of born on the trip. And wherever we go to, we're always looking around. So where's the next Peruvian restaurant? Especially mm-hmm. yeah. when my wife is Chilean. So wherever she can get a pisco sour, Peruvian yeah. or Chilean, she's super happy, right? So. <laughs> 
<laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's honestly hard to dislike. I definitely am very excited every time, every time I get to try it again. Very good. So, you know, from Peru to, you know, Dallas, I know you, you also, you had a, you have a background in, you know, startups and in web two. I would love to hear like, you know, what have been like the big steps and transformational elements in your life from like, you know, working, building, selling. I'm a first time founder. As an undergrad, I actually got exposure to the Web3 space. I was lucky enough to be adjacent to a really interesting research initiative called IC3, the Initiative for Cryptocurrencies and Smart Contracts. And I had already been around kind of like the some Ethereum researchers by the time I graduated in 2017. I ended up moving over to the Bay Area where I worked at Oracle and did a couple of blockchain stints that worked with Blockfolio and ended up at the Tezos Foundation. And actually before that, I had participated in a lot of the ETH Global Hackathon events that they put on all over the world. And in 2018, one of those hackathons actually spun up what would become the MVP for Boardroom. So Boardroom has been a long time in the making. It was four years, it was shelved for a while, but the I actually dove almost straight into Web3 after, after undergrad. So very little exposure. To so what gave birth to Boardroom really? Like where... Did it come from? Because if it's been on, you know, kind of your, you know, you put it on the shelf and you took it back out and it's been a while and looking at the time that DAOs have been active, you know, it's kind of an, it's an interesting background. What was the original idea? What problem did you see when you started Boardroom that you wanted to solve initially? And I'm not even sure if this is still the same thing you're doing today. Like in any startup, you likely, you know, the, the idea, the solution, the problem is adjusting. But what did you start off with? What, what did the, the idea come about? Yeah, so my focus had always been, and my real interest in Web3 had always been how crypto networks coordinated talent and decision-making and different types of stakeholders, right? It was really interesting to see all of these amazing problems we solved in you know, this open source environment, but the question always remained, who makes the decisions and how, you know, how do things change in these crypto networks? And that had been always like a, a really interesting fascination of mine, especially since the early days when I dove in. And back then, especially in 2017, 18, the focus was really around upgrading different, you know, essentially upgrading infrastructure, right? How do we actually make changes to code? How do we actually make changes in this, you know, open source software platform and who gets to make those changes? But you started to develop some really interesting theories behind mapping how different stakeholders would actually engage, mapping how different stakeholders actually had different motivations in these networks, right? And we we're really starting to see an expansion of who was actually involved in the ecosystem in these communities, right? I think early in the early days of crypto, we could essentially map all stakeholder user personas to, you know, some type of engineer or developer, right? It was a very monotonous kind of like type of person that was involved in the ecosystem. But especially after the boom in 17, we started to see all these different types of user personas kind of start to get involved in these networks. And that really prompted us to, that pr prompted me at the very least to start really researching what different mechanisms of governance and coordination, you know, were being used across different crypto networks and crypto platforms. Of course, Back then, it was mostly focused on different blockchain and layer one solutions, right? So how do we upgrade that infrastructure side of things? And a lot less focus was placed and, you know, less em emphasis on the application layer. Like, how do we actually make decisions on the app layer? So when we started, when we entered this hackathon in 2018, 
we had already been really interested in with the concept of governance and DAOs. I had spent a lot of time reading, you know, Aragon Research. Aragon is a infrastructure DAO tooling provider. And there were some projects trying to tackle these issues, right? We had DAO Stack, we had Aragon, we had some of these old service providers, but there hadn't really been a focus on UX the user experience, right, of actually interacting with these decision-making systems and processes. And in 2018, we saw a large boom in different blockchains, different layer one solutions emerge with embedded governance systems. You know, essentially they launched with a governance process already embedded in the code itself. So as an example, Tezos or Polkadot were different layer one solutions that were competing with Ethereum back then. And they were launching with native governance systems and governance processes in mind. So that got us really, really interesting, interested in this problem because the what these blockchains were doing were essentially assigning governance rights to the token holders from day one, right? And we started to look at that from the user's perspective. How does a user who has now been allocated governance rights actually interact with the system, actually interact with this network, which actually varies, right, in process and system. So the motivation behind hacking would become boardroom in, in 2018 was actually really to build a governance aggregator that actually enabled any user, regardless of what token they had in their wallet, to participate in the decision-making process across all these different layer one blockchains. So that was the project um, back in 2018. And obviously, you know, the idea behind um, DAOs and how we coordinate has really shifted over from, infra from the infrastructure layer pretty dramatically to the application layer, right? And that's what we can dive into as well. And that's the biggest difference between what Boredom looks like today versus what it looked like three, four years ago. Very good. So explain to somebody that, you know, has, you know, a little bit of idea of what a DAO is and has seen one or two, you know, what boardroom does today, like what would you use it for? What problem does it, you know, what problem does it solve? How do I use it, you know, at a high level? Absolutely. So Boardroom is a DAO discovery and transaction platform. So it essentially aggregates and lists all the different DAOs that exist in you know, different ecosystems. And it enables anyone who holds the tokens or any type of power in those DAOs to actually interact with their governance system. So what we're really focused on is unlocking the governance rights associated with you holding a token in your wallet and also giving you the ability to understand and contextualize what's happening in that DAO and what decisions you can actually take part of. So in other words, if, you know, I participate in some form or another, you know, be it I contribute uh, funds or I do work for, or, you know, I participate in different DAOs, so I hold the different governance tokens, I can go into boardroom, I can, you know, not only find other DAOs, but I can, you know, go to the DAOs that I hold tokens of, and then I can do what specifically? So you can actually interact with the governance system. And that essentially usually means to vote on specific proposals or changes to that DAO or, you know, operational decisions, or to actually delegate in some cases, your voting power, this voting power that you've been allocated to someone else, to some other third party. So those are the two, you know, core things that Boardroom enables you to do. Of course, you can also actually create proposals, you know, and pitch new ideas and upgrades to the DAO. But what we tend to see is that the majority of folks actually want to actually just cast a vote on decisions that are already being pushed through the process or delegate their voting power to a proxy that may be more informed than you to actually participate in these decisions. 
So brings up something I know that you also you know have an opinion about that is you brought it up twice now, which is the capability of delegating my vote, right? What's important about delegating a vote? Yeah, so if we, let's take a step back, right? And really start thinking about like what a DAO is, what it looks like. At the end of the day, a DAO is really just a framework, right? That enables a distributed group of actors and stakeholders to organize and coordinate to achieve a certain goal, right? And this is essentially done by sharing a set of rules that could or maybe not be enforced by a blockchain, right? So all a DAO is doing is providing a framework to a group of actors, right? To coordinate and especially, you know, towards to achieve some sort of goal. So if we start looking at these, you know, rules and how we coordinate and how we essentially allocate talent and resources to achieve that common goal, what tends to happen is that there's some subset, there's some delegation of responsibility that occurs within that DAO, right? It's very hard for every stakeholder in that community to make, to be able to participate or make every single decision to achieve that goal. So let's take an example. Let's take a product DAO as an example. A product DAO is to create and build a specific product that is then sold or used by external users to the DAO. Right. So within that initial kind of like building process, there's a lot of decisions that the set of actors, the set of token holders have to make around how to actually build the product itself. You know, there's a lot of product specific decisions, engineering decisions, marketing decisions, as you can imagine with any other type of startup or company. Most, a lot of token holders may not be qualified to make specific decisions um, or participate in governance that then, you know, it's actually executes the decisions. They might not be well-suited or specialized enough to make those decisions properly. So what you're starting to see now is that folks in, you know, within these communities are starting to realize, hey, maybe it doesn't really make sense for every single stakeholder, every token holder to participate in every single minute managerial decision that this DAO has to make. Instead, we should really start specializing. Right? We should start building pockets of knowledgeable folks that we can actually delegate responsibility to. And part of that, because the underlying system is governed by these, you know, essentially governance frameworks, what folks will really start to push now is a delegation process, right? Where token holders that may not be knowledgeable in, you know, building product X or coordinating resources in this way can actually delegate their responsibility, delegate their voting power to a proxy that may be more specialized and more knowledgeable and can make the decisions on their behalf. Now, the beauty of like Web3 and crypto and what DAOs essentially build around is that there is a semblance, some sense of transparency around this entire process. Everyone tends to know how much power has been delegated to certain proxies and everyone has that liquid ability to actually remove that delegation at any point in time, right? So theoretically, the delegators can keep the proxies accountable to a certain extent, even though they are delegating their responsibility to a smaller subset of stakeholders. So do you think that's the way to go? Do you think that is, and you know, this is where we are heading with the structure of DAOs? Because it's obviously, you know, dependent on the stage and the origin of the DAO, right? Like I'm thinking yep. about if I'm a product, you know, I'm a software startup and I'm building a product and I'm, you know, already have a team, right? Then I'm not trying to, you know, kind of look for delegates, right? It's like, I'm looking 
the other way around, like uh, how do I get the powers away from me? And obviously if I'm a community project where we started with a bunch of people, it's becoming more and more, then it's kind of like from the bottom up, is it, this is both valid or what, what, what do you, what do you, what do you, what do you see there? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think it really does depend on, on the use case and the stage of the DAO's growth. But what's really interesting is that we've been living over the last year and a half, we've been living kind of like this humorphic phase, right? Where people were just looking at traditional corporations or traditional kind of like entities and saying, hey, how do we actually translate, you know, this structure into a DAO or digitally native structure, right? So what you started seeing over the last year, year and a half was that we moved from, you know, the idea that every token holder should be making every decision in a DAO. That obviously didn't really work out. You had very low participation numbers. We moved over to what folks called governance 2.0, which was essentially building internal departments right, or internal working groups to delegate some responsibility to a smaller number of specialized stakeholders that could then build within the DAO structure. However, what I think we're starting to realize now is that, you know, we're essentially asking the question, why is there a firm boundary around the DAO itself, right? Why do we have to have these internal working groups and why can't we outsource a lot of this responsibility or governance responsibility to other external groups that can help us scale without necessarily having to have these internal departments? The entire, you know, I think the one of the real, really novel kind of like solutions that a DAO brings to the table is that it theoretically removes you know, the firm structure that's usually placed around a traditional corporation or LLC, it kind of removes that boundary, right? It enables, it lowers the transaction cost of actually um, transacting with external third parties, right? So what we're also opening up and what we're starting to see now is that a lot of DAOs, instead of solely allocating kind of like governance rights and decision-making power, or even delegating responsibility to internal working groups, we're starting to shift to DAOs actually outsourcing a lot of that responsibility to very fluid participants, working groups, contributors, sub DAOs as well, that can actually help a multitude of different DAOs scale their entire operation, their entire community and their product itself. So I think we're actually gonna evolve from this traditional hierarchical structure to where we went to that was a hub and spoke model Right, where there was a central DAO, central treasury, and all these internal working groups, to we're going to move from there to essentially the network playing field, right, where there's just multi-org relationships that are built across the board, and there's going to be a blend, essentially, of all these interactions and transactions across the board without necessarily having firm boundaries between, between how DAOs interact internally or externally. We can take a, an example that might um, actually make this easier to understand a working an internal working group that focuses on marketing for example for a DAO that's building a product before essentially only serviced that DAO right it was paid a million dollars for example from their treasury they had a million dollars of budget to allocate on a yearly basis what we're starting to see now is that working group itself is actually becoming a DAO-like structure which means that that working group can actually now detach from that single DAO that it was working for and actually service, you know, six or seven different DAOs across the board, you know, delivering these marketing services that are applicable to all of these different organizations. So we're starting to see these fluid relationships kind of evolve in this network styled manner instead of a hierarchical or hub and spoke model that we usually see in the traditional world. 
You know, I find this interesting and I can tell from, you know, how you describing is that, you know, you have this vantage point from, you know, in boardroom and looking, you know, on, on, on DAOs and, you know, in a, in a, in a, like a broad and high level view and the ability to also kind of dive down to the specifics. And it's funny because we had this conversation earlier, earlier today, me and, you know, another team member. And now that you bring this up, I, it also generates some more clarity for me. So let, let me ask, try to ask another question here. Try, it, it's like a complex, but I'm going to try to keep it to the point as much as I can. Okay. If I would look into corporate, traditional corporate structures, right? You, what we're seeing is that corporate structures in the, you know, old world, so to speak, try to decentralize, no, not decentralize, to try to create the same outsourcing mechanisms that, you know, you now describing in DAOs, right? Like the automotive industry, for example, has been doing this forever. Instead of like producing every single piece of the car, you moving, you know, as much of the production to specialized providers and those providers, they might have actually started as a supplier to BMW, but they are now servicing, you know, producing the same headlights, same tires for, you know, other automotive. So this is actually not really particular to DAOs, right? Like this is also with all the downsides and problems of the corporate structures and the hierarchies, no doubt there, but this outsourcing aspect is not, is not new, right? It comes, it's already there. Then in the traditional world, in the tech, look in the tech world, right? If you want to build a product, the best thing you can likely do is get three people together, lock them in the basement and like try to spin out the product, not vote around button colors, right? So the, the organizational structure is very much focused and there's kind of common patterns or common structures that are proven to be highly effective in terms of productivity, right? They produce, uh, they have high productivity. And on the DAO side, now, you know, you have all of this experimentation going on, which is absolutely great to invent new ways of doing things, right? Like voting on everything and, you know, projects and products, you know, being born out of a community and, you know, Ethereum itself. So there's a certain degree of leadership, but there's a huge decentralization from the beginning. And I feel there's, you know, a lot of extremes, like there's, you know, like abandoning, trying to abandon on one side what's happening in the, you know, what the traditional proven structures are towards extremes where I personally sometimes feel I have no clue how this is going to work ever, you know, to things where you clearly need to go, you know, maybe some of the aspects or clearly some of the ways we work today, we work this way because there was no other way of doing it before. So the question for you is, you know, trying to, you know, putting this in is, what do you, if you had to narrow it down, okay, to one or two or three aspects that, you know, DAOs and, you know, Web3 in general enable that make work in teams fundamentally different that are just enabled through this technology now that can be leveraged, what is it? What are the things that you were, that you believe make a hell of a difference and that were not possible really in terms of transaction costs and so before, yeah. because these are the things that DAO should focus on, right? Like I should pick up on the things that really make a difference, not make it different just because I can. No, because it makes sense. 
Absolutely. I think it comes down to efficiency and scale. So, I mean, taking it back to what you were chatting about, right? Like, let's ask the question, why do firms exist in the first place, right? And we can like literally drive it back to Coase's like theory of the firm, right? The entire reason that a firm exists is to lower transaction costs, right? And there's different types of transaction costs, right? There's, I think what he identified was that there's a search and information transaction costs, bargaining and decision-making, and a policing and enforcement transaction cost and entering into any type of contract, right? So the reason why firms exist is because by creating a firm boundary around a set of, you know, essentially talent or stakeholders, they're reducing all of those costs because they can trust that everyone within that boundary of the firm essentially has already signed a contract that's enforceable, right? They can uh, have full transparency of information within that boundary and they can discover and search all of that information very easily, right? So it's essentially reducing all types of transaction costs of coordinating talent, right, within that boundary. What DAOs are really bringing to the table is potentially, and by the way, I don't think we've achieved this yet. We're in the very, very early stages of discovering all of this, right? It's potentially kind of like turning all of that in its head and saying, we can actually reduce all of those transaction costs without actually having to build a firm structure around an entity, right? We can have a completely transparent framework that actually coordinates the work to, you know, the same degree of efficiency without actually having to create that firm structure or that border, you know, around diving into like each type, you know, each one of these types of costs. Let's take, for example, search and information, right? Theoretically, usually the discovery of information and the sharing of information is completely, in a, you know, lives in a locked box because it could reduce a competitive advantage for a specific corporation or a firm. What we're still trying to test out, right? But in DAOs and in crypto networks, theoretically, a lot of these transactions move to a completely transparent ledger. And theoretically, anyone can actually find or, you know, map how all of these transactions are taking place for any type of organization. Okay. Now, bargaining, bargaining and decision. This is, I think, the one that we haven't solved in DAOs, right? How do you actually negotiate and come to a decision on what contribution looks like or what work looks like? That's very subjective, right? And that's something that we're still trying to figure out. But the final one's the biggest one, policing and enforcement right? Why does a firm, as you mentioned before, you know, it's not a completely novel concept that corporations outsource work. Absolutely not. But it's insanely costly. It's insanely expensive, right, to do so. Why? Because the two counterparties theoretically don't trust each other, right? You're starting off with like this assumption that you don't trust each other. You need to build a contract that's enforceable, you know, in a real world jurisdiction in order to make sure that now you can trust the counterparty enough to have them actually do out, you know, perform that outsourced work for you. What's really interesting though, is that now, you know, in, in the DAO-like structure, theoretically we're moving that transaction enforcement to a blockchain. Right, these rules and standards are now enforced by a smart contract that's settled on chain. So that dramatically reduces, right, the policing and enforcement costs because now we don't necessarily rely on the letter of the law, right, or a judge to potentially enforce a business contract, right? All of that is specified previously by a smart contract that's then enforced and executed on chain. So that kind of like that reduction, the massive reduction in the cost of transacting with an external party that I don't trust, a counterparty that I don't trust, is a massive shift 
right? Because now I can actually, these DAOs can actually build relationships between each other. Uniswap can hire a sub-DAO, marketing sub-DAO to do work with them. And a lot of it, I'm not saying all of it because there's still a lot of subjectivity that comes into this type of contract, right? But a lot of it can be specified by business logic in a smart contract that's then executed and available for everyone to see. So we're dramatically reducing the discovery and the enforcement costs of entering into any sort of work agreement. And I think that's what's really revolutionary about DAOs, right? It can do that, do this and essentially scale, you know, at a scale that we've never seen before, a scale essentially built for the digital economy, because there's very little barriers to entry for anyone to be able to provide the services as well. So I think it does really come down to just a dramatic reduction of all forms of transaction costs, which essentially removes the need of having a corporate-like boundary around a specific entity, right? They can live in these completely flat and flexible ecosystems, which is really interesting. But again, as I mentioned, we're really early, right? And I think a lot of, we're, we're start, still trying to figure out how a lot of this kind of like pans out. Yeah, very good and very, very clear answer. Put and I hope people that are not yet in the space start getting the idea, you know, what is, you know, not what's happening just on the surface, but what's, you know, happening in the layers, you know, that enabling the self. This is very, very good. If let's, let's look at this a little bit from like, uh, you know, from different personas. If I'm, if I'm a founder today and I'm setting up a software company, it's not necessarily web three could be, but you know, that you're building a software product, you're building a SaaS product. Would you recommend to use a DAO? No, <laughs> not, not okay. today. Specifically because number one, the infrastructure is very nascent. And I think in order to build a product specifically, you need, you need some unilateral oversight and some unilateral decision-making over, especially in the early days of, of the development of a product, right? So I think a much better playbook for someone who's actually building a software or any type of product, even in Web2, is to especially go through the progressive decentralization playbook, right? It's starting with a small you know, number of team members that can actually unilaterally make decisions and make fast and iterative decisions, which is really what's needed in the early days of finding product market fit. And then once that product market fit is found, and once you start identifying who your users are, not only your users, who your stakeholders are, right? Your entire community from users to potential employees to third party kind of folks that are, you know, somehow related to your product. Once you start really mapping your stakeholders, that's when it really makes sense to start developing a DAO and aligning incentives under the concept of the ownership economy, right? We think that a big reason why DAOs are a useful tool here are to essentially bring in the concept of the user economy, sorry, the ownership economy, which is inherently that users and stakeholders of a specific product or network of software actually can own a little, you know, a piece of that community, a piece of that ecosystem in order to align their incentives more properly, right? And by the way, this is nothing new, right? The idea of stakeholder governance or stakeholder theory, right, has existed in the corporate world for the last 30 years. A lot of folks have talked about it a lot, but you've seen very little practical implementation of any type of stakeholder theory. Stakeholder theory is kind of like a direct contrast to share, shareholder theory, right? Where you're just trying to maximize value for shareholders as a corporation. A lot of folks have argued that stakeholder theory actually creates even more value because you're taking into account all other types of stakeholder personas that might be or touch your business in any other, in any type of way, right? So this includes, um, for example, your employees. It includes, as an example, Uber. It would include the Uber drivers, right? Even though right now they're independent contractors and have very little alignment of incentives with the actual shareholders of Uber, right? So the this theory has been around forever, but there's never really been a practical way of implementing it. 
a really interesting thing that the you know DAOs and the blockchain theoretically enable us to do is to actually map those user personas more properly because it's very easy to identify who your users are, who your you know DAO contributors are, and who all these stakeholders personas are as well because to a certain extent you're just basing it on student pseudo anonymous activity, right, and based on an address on a wallet address instead of a real physical identity. So it's a bit easier to map a lot of these things. Um, when it comes to spinning up and down. So back to the original question. If you're starting off to build a you know product, I actually, you know, I, I think what we're seeing today is that it's recommended that you go through a progressive decentralization because it doesn't really make sense to spin up a DAO if you don't know who your stakeholders are, right? The stakeholders that you're trying to empower haven't really been identified yet. I think in the early days of a product, it's, it makes much more sense to unilaterally build a smaller team that can make a lot of fast and iterative decisions and then progressively decentralize once you've actually um, found out who your users and who your stakeholders are uh, that you actually want to empower in the first place through the method of a DAO, of spinning up a DAO. Very good. And in that line, you know, talking about shareholders and stakeholders, you know, one of the things that, you know, I had people asking, actually literally asking me about in this context when talking about DAOs is, you know, this is all really cool. Now, you know, from hands-on experience, for example, just looking at things like stock option plans, which have been, as you know, you already said it, have been around for a while, is that yeah. you know, they work really well on, you know, or they work, let's put it like that, they work on, you know, high, high potential technology startups in, you know, Silicon Valley, to put it somehow, to put the contrast, you know, if you're running a marketing agency in Peru, your employees, like, you're not going to give a fuck about it, right? Like, it's, they're not going to care. And obviously, there's an entire thing about, you know, if you set up as a DAO, say, hey, you know, you can trade it, you know, from very early, and there's all, there's all sorts of benefits to it. But will it hold up in time? Like, is this not just, you know, you know, something that is, you know, viable in a beer market where people go like, oh, I'm getting a token, a token is going to go up in value. So I want to participate and I can additionally vote and so on. But financial incentive yeah. likely going to drive the majority of this, right? Like how it's, that's how it is. That's a very interesting point, right? Because like, maybe not, right? I think it could. So we do tend to think about this, like, new alignment of incentives, right? By giving people tokens or like exposure to potential outside as a direct comparison with like providing stock option plans. And I think that's very applicable today, but it could be very interesting to explore that as just the first step in the door, right? Like we are actually providing, you know, potential upside and aligning incentives for all these types of stakeholders by giving them this token exposure. Okay, if we leave it there, I think you're absolutely right. It may not hold in the long term, right? Like, again, it's just financial exposure. People might not care. The actual doubt may not grow, right? There's like a lot of issues with also instant liquidity and a lot of these different things, right? Um, I think what we're really starting to tap the surface of now is different ways to actually incentivize that sense of belonging, Right. Or, or create that sense of belonging or community within these communities and DAOs. Right. I think the financial kind of like exposure is should be step one of the process. But step two should actually try to be, you know, it should be to try to engage these stakeholders in different ways that is not, you know, not limited to financial upside. And we're starting to see that with the development of like things like co-ops, right? And like all these badges and NFTs and things that start to identify a person past a potential kind of like upside 
and give grant them access to different features and functionality that's kind of inherent to that community, right? All of this just to create a greater sense of belonging than just financial exposure. Now, this is like really hard to do, right? And I think Dallas is experimenting right now with a myriad ways to do this. But I think that's really going to be kind of like the key to engaging your stakeholders for the long term, right? Because short-term incentivization is really easy to create. I mean, we saw that with liquidity mining, you know, in, in the DeFi summer, right? Where folks essentially just airdropped these tokens to incentivize, you know, the provision of liquidity, but it never helped really didn't hold up in the long term, right? Because folks are just actually incentivized to sell, you know, to get away from that community as fast as possible. I think creating a, a deeper sense of belonging for stakeholders is going to be really important. And I think that's going to be done through different, essentially reputational and identity features and functionality that you can add to enable new types of access or new type of rewards for their stakeholders. So I think that's really what we you know, we're really starting to scratch the surface, but on, unfortunately, we don't really know what, what that'll look like in a few years. So taking this a little bit forward, because, you know, this is, you know, where this leads in a few years, as he put it earlier, you know, the, you know, the essence of the firm is to reduce transaction cost, right? So <laughs> if I'm now in the old world or the old world or the web two world or whatever it is i'm not connected in the web three world why should i care about this like apart from you know speculating with tokens and you know hopefully making a shitload of money with it why should i care or why should anyone care about DAOs and this new kind of structures apart from that they are a more efficient firm because they have lower transaction costs what's the value beyond that if any. Yeah, I think it does come down to an alignment of incentives for workers to actually, you know, be aligned with the product or feature that they're building for or the community that they're building with, right? So for the, let's take it from the perspective of an employee or a worker or contributor, and usually in a, you know, traditional corporate structure, you're getting paid to, you know, rent your time out pretty much, right? You're renting your time out to some sort of entity or corporation that's trying to also achieve a goal, but there's very little incentive alignment with, with the actual employee or the worker, right? You have very little reason to actually care about what you're really building, right? Because it really has, you know, minuscule impact on your life. Now, if we are able to execute on this vision for DAOs, right? And also, you know, essentially align incentives through financial upside, potential financial upside, but also through community features, reputational features, right? A worker that transitions from, you know, web two or, you know, traditional finance job or any type of job actually to a DAO-like structure, to a DAO-like contributor structure, potentially could find themselves actually really aligned with the vision of the community, with the financial, you know, for the, with the potential for financial upside as well. But most importantly, find themselves aligned with the growth of the product itself that they're pushing for, right? So the biggest difference for someone who today is involved in crypto and doesn't really care is that what we're creating here is a potential structure for you, the contributor, the employee, to be much more aligned with the community that you're building with and the product that you're building. And I think that can drastically change how you think about work. You know, a lot of people have this, you know, preconceived idea, you know, time has to be rented. And like, you're just working, you shouldn't care about the product that you're building. But we, you know, I think a lot of folks in the Web3 ecosystem actually put a lot of emphasis on ensuring that there's an alignment of, you know, with the 
contributor and the employee and the product that they're building, because that brings always brings a, a bigger sense of purpose, a bigger sense of kind of like belonging as well to the community that you're building with, and it aligns incentives pretty drastically. So I think you know the the core reason why folks should care outside of the Web three ecosystem is because this is an opportunity to actually you know care about what you're working on, <laughs> and ideally if we're able to execute um, on this correctly, it could present a completely new model to you know for work and for the traditional employee to to transition to Web three. So what will work look like in a few years? What do you think the life of somebody that is today a web designer and builds landing pages on Squarespace and mostly gets gigs on Upwork and, you know, as you put it, likely couldn't care less what the landing page is about, right? And, you know, kind of works across multiple customers, maybe has one big customer, spends half of his day, half of his time per month there. Where do you think, where do you envision that person that goes down this path of joining one or multiple DAOs? Where's, mm -hmm. where's, where's he going to be in five years? What's the life going to look like? What's where, how does he work? Yeah, I think what's likely going to happen is that they're going to find a community of individuals. It could be five people. It could be 30 people, right? That they're actually very aligned with, like building with, right? So it could be other designers, five other designers or five other developers or anyone like that. And they're going to probably spin up a sub -doubt. And by sub DAO, we mean a very small, or, you know, what folks are calling pods as well, a very small group of individuals spin up a uh, shared wallet on, you know, a blockchain like Ethereum, for example, and uh, spin up a very basic, you know, set of rules that they all have to follow to actually govern themselves, cover this little um, community. And that sub DAO of marketers, of designers, of developers will actually service uh, larger DAOs that have a lot of money in treasury and need to scale their operations, right? So this person that's now working through Upwork or, you know, any of these other discovery tools for jobs and gigs will actually find, you know, will likely find kind of like a small community that they can collaborate with and understand how to build with, and then actually have the flexibility to pick and choose what DAOs they, you know, build on. I mean, a completely flexible, you know, interaction. Right? And all of that will be routed through governance, which hopefully through tools like Boardroom, you know, are easier to interact with. So this, this essentially like smaller community or individual contributor will have the flexibility to like kind of pick and choose the same way that they're picking and choosing today, you know, what contracts and what corporations, you know, what companies to, to build with. They'll have this, the exact same experience and flexibility to do that with DAOs. But the biggest difference though is that now DAOs have the opportunity to align the incentives of this, you know, small working group with that of the DAO by actually paying them, for example, in native tokens as a part of that compensation package, right? So it just completely opens up the world of possibilities because hopefully that, you know, that old built employee and now new contributor can actually service, you know, any kind of DAO in the world in a completely flexible manner without entering into too aggressive of a contract. So let me get towards the final question here. If this technology has the ability to transform the way we work and give people the opportunity to choose the things they like to work on and you know care about the products and services and you know things they they deliver and built through the DAOs, that's obviously a good 
and you know, great thing. No, no, I think there's no argument to make really make against it. In the overall picture, um, you know, a lot of people are getting involved in this. They first are, you know, they don't understand it and they find it scary or just too crazy or too far away from reality. And then they usually, you know, think it's all kind of a pyramid scheme. Somebody must be winning somewhere, right? So, you know, they're going to end up losing out on it. And then, you know, people very often go through the stage of going well. Um, this might all also end up as this, you know, what you described as great transparency without borders, but, you know, transparency being in the hands of really, you know, centralized powers rather than, you know, great having decentralized technologies and decentralized stuff, but fundamentally in the end, you know, it's, you know, China having everybody's identity in its hands and ability to control everything. So, you know, from a perspective of a total, you know, in the spectrum of like just being a total utopia of, you know, uh, we all live happily after, after, ever after, to like, you know, we're going to end up in hell. Are we going to fundamentally end up in a better place or in the same or in a worse place? And there's really just an answer. Are we going to, you know, as a yes and no question, will we end up in a better place with all of this? I think it completely depends on how we design the accountability mechanism. So I think power and capital is always going to aggregate towards a few number of, of people. Like that always, you know, will always happen. I think with any type of system that's emergent, it could be, you know, kind of like policy that's implemented on a, on a jurisdictional level or any type of like economic policy, et cetera. This, it's you know, capital and, and talent and power always aggregates towards the few. Like that's always happened and it will always happen. Now, what we can implement with these types of systems, especially on the governance level, but in the, you know, on, on the actual participation level too, are proper accountability mechanisms, right? We're always going to have to delegate responsibility to specialized stakeholders. Like that's always going to have to happen. Now, the big question is, can they abuse that power? Right. Can that power be abused and can that capital be abused? Right. And the question for the most part, you know, that the answer to that question today in most of the systems that we have today in both, you know, um, economic systems and political systems, too, is it's pretty easy to abuse right? because there's a lack of transparency and there's a lack of accountability. Now, what we can start creating through blockchain frameworks and through DAO frameworks is actually enforceable, you know, accountability mechanisms. And I think that's really novel. That's really interesting, right? Because not only do we have insight and transparency to what everyone, you know, that small number of managerial members is doing all the time, but we can build in enforceable veto mechanisms, enforceable withdrawal mechanisms, right? All of these different kinds of like governance experiments and mechanisms, we can embed those directly into enforceable smart contracts, right? So if suddenly all of our contracts and interactions start living on the blockchain, we can build much more transparent and much better executable like accountability mechanisms for that small number of stakeholders that are actually controlling the system. And I think that's really the novelty, right? And if we can get there, <laughs> and we're not there yet, right? But if we can get there, that's going to completely dramatically change how we see you know, the aggregation of power. I mean, work, you know, work and life has already changed, right, over the last two years pretty drastically because of the pandemic and because of a number of things. The future of work is, you know, something that everyone talks about. But 
that is, it doesn't, it hasn't really changed the underlying or foundational like distribution of power. If, if anything, it's actually worsened it, right? It's created bigger and bigger divides between different working, working folks and, you know, white collar, blue collar, you know, folks as well. The pandemic has dramatically accelerated like the division distribution of power. We're saying, Hey, if we can actually start like, you know, bridging that those interactions and transactions, the more and more we bridge into an enforceable blockchain mechanism, it's not going to like instantly change the world for the better, right? It will only change the world for the better if we can actually have new checks on that power, right? And how that power is distributed and how that capital is allocated. And I think that's something that DAOs can provide, you know, that, that these frameworks can provide, right? And blockchains can provide in general is that we're not necessarily reliant on institutions anymore to enforce, you know, these checks on power, right? Now, we, essentially, stakeholders have the power to actually check that themselves, which is really interesting. But again, you know, very early on in these experiments. So now to close this, give me a yes or no answer. What do you believe? Will we build a better place or not? Absolutely, yes. I'm, a, I'm an optimist by nature. <laughs> I'm really hoping that we will build a better place. It's honestly hard to mess up, you know, more than we have already <laughs> so, with our current systems. But I think any semblance of transparency and any kind of like improvement in the distribution of influence and power is will will actually create an improve, you know, an improvement in people's lives. But I think it's not going to be five years. I think it's going to be because this this jump in this bridge. It's going to take really long, number one, to build up, to build the infrastructure for, and number two, to actually convince people that this is to their benefit, right? And I think that's really going to take decades, uh, not years. Kevin Nielsen, thank you very much. Stay an optimist, and <laughs> thanks for your time. Thank you. Hello again. Yes, it's me, Tim. If you made it through the entire recording, this podcast, you might want to subscribe and stay tuned. Over the coming three months, I will be likely releasing about two, pa um, two podcasts per week. Um, focus, obviously, Web3 builders and DAOs and how they can transform our lives. If you have any feedback, questions, or want to suggest a guest that I should interview, Simply look me up on Telegram or go to my homepage. Um, very easy. Delhas.com. D-E-L-H-A-E-S.com. So, see ya and thanks for tuning in.